Welcome to the No Film School podcast. This is Gigi Hawkins. And today I speak with writer-director Laura Moss and writer Brendan J. O'Brien, the team behind the new horror film Birth Rebirth, which premiered at Sundance and just had its limited theatrical release. Since interviewing this team at Sundance, where they were fresh off of screening it at the opening night, midnight, screening, which is sort of the Sundance horror love fest that we all piled into a huge theater to watch this film at midnight on the first day, we were able to sort of unpack what that experience was like and what it took to get here. The film itself is a modern retelling of Frankenstein's monster, and it's a film that unpacks the madness and monstrosity of motherhood. So this ferocious feminist take on Frank, the Frankenstein myth. It's something that uh, has been selected as a critic's pick by the New York Times, and it's going to be coming out on Shudder, I believe, soon. But what's interesting about our conversation with Laura and Brendan is the process of reanimating the story to get to the place that it was a feature film at Sundance. Laura and Brandon take us through the process of discovering and rediscovering the story and iterating on that, which I think is so important for us as emerging filmmakers. And Small World, Laura won the Salute Your Shorts Film Festival, which just happened last weekend here in LA during the hurricane. I was screening a short there with a couple other filmmakers. So it's amazing to see how in just a few years you can be you know, showing up at that festival and then screening your film in a limited release across the country. One other thing to listen for in this conversation is the collaboration between Laura and Brendan. Their dynamic as a writing team shows both on the page and on screen. And it's interesting to see how they created essentially a two-hander for this film. And now my interview with the team behind Birth Rebirth. I'm here with the the creators of Birth Rebirth, Laura Moss, the writer director, and Brendan Jameson O'Brien, <laughs> the other writer on the film. And and I have to caveat, we were debating before we started if we'd include your middle initial, and then I asked what your middle name was, and you said Jameson, and and then I just peer pressured you to let me use the whole name. My there are two reasons. One, there is a much more successful writer in the Writers Guild named Brendan O'Brien, who is a very very nice person. When we get each other's email, I actually and, do uh, know. I know who he is. Yeah. Yes, he's incredibly talented, very nice man, and uh, yeah, the Jameson. My parents just wanted everyone to know how aggressively Irish I was. I guess so. Okay, so tell me, for our listeners, what is Birth Rebirth about? Well, it's a, it's a modern sort of take on the Frankenstein story, although not really a straight adaptation. It's about two women and Rose. Rose is a pathologist who is interested in creating life with her mind, but uses the products of her body to further her experiments. And Celia is a single mother and a maternity nurse who, whose life revolves around her, her six-year-old daughter, Leela. Early on in the film, Leela suffers a tragic accident, dies, and her body goes missing while when it ends up on Rose's pathology table. Celie tracks her daughter down to find her reanimated, and the film sort of takes off from there. 
And I just want to say, this was the first thing I saw here at Sundance. After waking up at 4 a.m., I came to the midnight screening, the premiere, and was on the edge (laughs) of my seat the whole time. So I think that speaks to how horrifying and hilarious at moments and well told and and great this film was. So congratulations Thank you. <laughs> Thank on you. screening it. And we also did have the pleasure of speaking with Taylor Morton, your editor. Uh, Mason, yes. Taylor yeah. Mason, yeah. excuse me, during our post-production roundtable. So listeners can cool. tune in to hear about the process of post on this film. But first, I want to hear about how you two met as writers. We met, we were both in school together in undergrad at NYU. I was in film school. I was in film school, so I no don't mean to go, no judgment for the podcast. Thank you. And Laura was in drama school and we were both doing a study abroad in Ireland. And we both got along very, very well. We both had similar interests in horror movies and 90s sketch comedy and drinking to very late hours. So basically yeah. we, yeah, we met, we got to know each other. We fell in love. We got married. We got divorced. And then we started really writing together in earnest. So wow. it's been quite a journey. <laughs> I did not know about the middle part of yeah. that relationship. Yeah, it's a key part. But no, it's it's definitely, I mean, when you go through a lot of personal things, writing becomes very easy or at least not as fraught. But no, I mean, it's, I don't know. I, I, I'm really grateful for the relationship we have both personally and professionally. Yeah. And so what was the, I guess, spark of the idea for Birth Rebirth? Well, I've been thinking about this in one form or another since I was 12 or 13, and I read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and I was just kind of obsessed with her and with the novel. And before I was a filmmaker, I mean, I was a PA, and then I was in the art department, you know, in various iterations in New York City, but I wasn't really writing or directing. And I started writing these journal entries that were like from this character's perspective. It was like Rose in prison justifying her experiments to the mother of a child that she reanimated without her consent. Wow. And I shared them with Brendan and we talked about them and and it was just an idea that kind of kept bubbling up. It wasn't the first feature that we wrote together. We wrote another feature called Gordon, which we're hoping is our next one, which is much more expensive than this one and wasn't destined to be our first feature. And when we we started talking about sort of what other ideas do we have and this one Sort of felt undeniable. Yeah, it was something, you know, when, you, when you're working with somebody, especially when you spend so much time with someone, you pull out all the little bits and bobs from like childhood and adolescence of like weird ideas you had. And I distinctly remember one time just like hanging out in the kitchen and Laura like talking about, I think I was like washing dishes or something, all these weird journal entries that made this really compelling story and just felt like something I had never seen before. So this was very much Laura's germ of an idea that. I think, you know, over many iterations, we, we brought different things out of. I, I love that Rose, Rose's journal entries was the sort of first thing written about this. Rarely do I remember a character's name after seeing a film and Rose stuck out to me. Mm. I remember walking back with Ryan, the founder of No Film School, after seeing it in and I think we were like on a high and also had an adrenaline rush because we had just finished a great movie, but we also hadn't slept in a long time. And I said, I, I said a quote that was like, oh, I think I was quoting Grant's character, mm. her Rose's coworker. And it was like, Rose, are you okay? And, and I, so I never remember characters' names except mm. for Rose, I guess. And she is such a compelling, interesting character. Did you 
talk to me about the process of starting to break the story. How did you guys even start talking about what kind of story it would be? Did you always know it would be the pathologist and the mother character? I think we always knew it was going to be those two characters. We, you know, I, I use deadlines to help myself, to motivate myself. And I use the no film school list of grants, the like quarterly list of grants that comes out, yeah. you know, religiously check and, and try to apply for as much as possible. And I think that this was the second year I'd applied for the Sundance Labs with uh, this with this project. With this project, well, I mean, it was the second year I'd applied in general, and the and and we had not gotten in with Gordon. I thought, all right, I'm going to use this as an impetus. That you know, the for anyone who hasn't applied, the Sundance Labs requires in the spring just the first, just a synopsis of the film, the first five pages, and a letter of intent. So you don't have to have written the whole feature. <laughs> so so we sort of assembled those pieces, still not really knowing what the feature was going to be. And then found out we got into the second round of the labs in the, you know, and then we had two weeks to write it basically <laughs> because that's when the deadline happens. So I took a, a, a swing at the first draft. It was 60 pages. It was plotless. It was like meandering, very moody, but, you know, still we hadn't figured out what the mechanics of the story were. We did not get into the labs that year. <laughs> But it was great because it just forced me to sort of spit out something. And that, I think, started a conversation between us about what it needed yeah. to be. Yeah, usually it's it's an example of how I think when we do our, our best work together, how we work. Laura will usually do a first pass that is incredibly truncated and has a lot of like structural, really important things in there. And then I would take it and write, go way too far in the other direction. Uh-huh. Right? The, I think the second draft, which I took was like 154 pages. So you go way too, and then we bat it back and forth until we kind of whittle it down. But a lot of it too is about, about tone. I mean, I remember when we, we did kind of crack a version of it that we felt was really doing a lot of things that worked and we, we were getting all the ideas we wanted in there and the characters were really working. And I remember us both sitting down and reading it and being like, this is the darkest, grimmest, like 110 pages like just sitting with our own work was so mm. like much of a downer. We were like, would you want to watch this? Mm. And yeah. yeah, I what one of the best pieces of advice I got from a mentor, who, his name's John Tintori and he's a, an editor. He said, you know, take your draft and go through it and highlight only the things that you love. Like not things that are okay or things that work, but things that you love. And, you know, I remember doing this with Gordon with our first feature and 154 page, something like that page script and only 12 pages, you know, were things that I loved. And he said, well, that's great because now the rest of your movie, you just need to make it like that. Like you've, you've found your North star, you found Mm -hmm. your tone, just do that. And I, I remember our grim version of the script probably had like one joke in it. And I think we were clinging for dear life to that one joke, like, (laughs) Oh God, we need this. And I, and I think it, yeah, it took a little bit, but we've, through subsequent passes, really injected some humor, which I think is necessary. Yeah, yeah. It's, talking to to Taylor, the editor, she said that in the edit, you discovered moments of levity as well, and that that weren't necessarily in in the script. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Those moments that you found that you didn't realize would would get a laugh, especially now that you've seen it in front of. Audiences. Yeah. I mean, Taylor, so Taylor won an Emmy recently for her work on the Black Lady Sketch Show. And she also edited episodes of Dahmer, the the Netflix Dahmer series, the Ryan Murphy Dahmer series. And, very um, dark. and I was joking with her. I'm like, this movie's like the Black Lady Sketch Show meets 
Dahmer. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, take those two things. Yeah. But Taylor's so good at finding, you know, like cutting for humor, finding humor, and and then, but also like not letting go of tension or drama. You know, it's so hard for me to have any perspective on like funny, mo- I don't know. Like when I, I'm just watching other people watch the movie, but yeah. is there a moment that stands out to you? Oh, well, I think so much of of probably what, what Taylor was talking about that we found in the edit were, you know, we we had 24 days to shoot this, which is luxurious for a lot of, small films, but like we needed every nanosecond of it and we would have loved to have had more, but looking through so much stuff, like on the day, like, did you get it? Okay, move on. Did you get it? Move on. There was not a lot of time to, to play around as much as I think Laura would have liked, but you see these little things that you don't see on the day that the actors are doing. And specifically, there were so many small moments in, in Marin's performance who played Rose and in Judy's performance who played Celie that were really funny. Just their interactions with each other playing off that kind of odd couple dynamic. Like yeah. they, both actresses found these moments that when Taylor was cutting him and we were in there cutting with Taylor became like the heart of certain scenes. Mm-hmm. You're like, no, no, that look, that glance, that, you know, side eye, mm-hmm. build everything around that for this mm-hmm. scene. And on the page, it wasn't necessarily that way. Now, the when the film was being introduced, I the programmer, the Midnight's programmer said that he believed this was the first last supported project that has been accepted into Midnight's, mm-hmm. which to me is an indicator of horror being taken seriously in this industry for once, which is very nice. Mm-hmm. Um, so you eventually got into the labs, it sounds like. Yes. After many, many multiple attempts, we got into the Sundance Labs, which was an incredible experience. Can I ask how many times well, to give us be- all hope? Between Gordon and our three births, so we, we applied multiple times with both projects. Four? It was, it was two with Gordon, two with Birth Rebirth, and then so the fifth time overall is when we got in. Yeah. And yeah, to anybody listening, like one rejection does not mean you're punted. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, they only take so many and there's, it's not just about like the quality of the script you send and they're looking for specific things and specific voices to kind yeah. of round out what they do. So to anybody listening who's applying to these things, it gets incredibly discouraged after one rejection, like Ned, you it, celebrate it, it, it almost, it. Yeah, really yeah. celebrate it, learn from it, go make it better. I mean, it, it really, so many people in the labs with us had had the same experience, yeah. applied and been rejected, applied and been rejected year after year. We were in the labs with Charlotte Wells, who directed after, who did after sun, mm-hmm. um, after sun. And we were in the labs with Nagatu Jusu, who did nanny, mm-hmm. both like astonishing movies. And it was amazing to read them on the script level. You know, there are a couple other films that have not yet been made that are also pretty incredible. I'm lucky to be with nanny, I think, because we weren't the only horror project there. Right, right. So we were definitely able to process the notes that we were getting and talk to each other about, you know, the nature of horror. Yeah. One of the things that the labs requires you to do, if you're reapplying with the same project, is speak to how it has materially changed if you've applied in the past, which, you know, of course, over the years, you're making major discoveries, I'm sure, with the script either in the context of reapplying to the labs and how things have changed or just breaking the next iteration of the story, what were some of the big overhauls or discoveries that you made throughout the years of working on this project? I think one of the biggest issues that, you know, it it will leave it up to the critics to decide if we addressed is the issue of, you know, we're, we're telling this heightened Frankenstein story mm-hmm. about these two women co-parenting a reanimated child. There are a lot of things we need to get the audience on board to believe that are pretty unbelievable. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things we realized is that the medical realism in this 
film, it was really important to us that yeah. like the medicine needed to be grounded. Rose's science, as much as it is science fiction, needed to be grounded in like real actual stem cell research and trends. Mm-hmm. So that was a big part of it. And yeah, I think, you know, there were parts of the story that interested us more than others. And how do we sort of get to the place we want to get to as quickly and efficiently as possible while while making sure we've given the audience time to sort of go on that journey with us? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of, like I said before, bringing humor into it was a really, really important thing. And not like, you know, forcing in like, you know, pratfalls or something like that, but like letting the natural odd couple situation of two very, very different people who are just thrown into this this situation together, like let that natural humor come out. I think structurally, there's a lot of things we we maybe spent too much time agonizing over, just like, you know, making sure that we we were giving enough space for, like Laura said, like things that kind of felt unbelievable to to be fleshed out, but then going like too far the other way. Like I, I absolutely was the person who was like, no, we have this information about how the stem cells should work. So we need a 10 page scene of Rose explaining like <laughs> the genome and where it all came from with like a pointer and like Sealy taking it. It's like, that's no, one no one's that. asking for that. Yeah. <laughs> so you can go too far with that too. But just to bring it back to the labs for a second. So uh, Doug McGrath, who's an incredible writer who has unfortunately passed away since the labs was, I mean, had a storied career, but but punched up a lot of Woody Allen and wrote with Woody Allen and, you know, sat down with us basically day one of the labs and said, you know, I'm a comedy guy. I don't understand horror. I don't understand what this is, but <laughs> I can punch up your dialogue. And he literally went page by page with like through the script and Whoa. just kind of with with pitches, with like suggestions that, you know, we were to, we were to take or leave. But I mean, that was like, an incredible experience. It was incredible. And it was so like, it's not necessarily what you expect when you go to those labs. Like we, and we had so many people who were, were amazing giving us their thoughts and notes, but particularly Doug's notes did stand out. Cause it was just like, here's where I think it's dragon. Take it or leave it. Here's some ideas. Here's where I think it, it, it was addressing yeah. it. Like, like it was a comedy, like you needed butts and seats to go with right, it. And right. it was invaluable. Like it was, and, and another thing that like was also incredible about that whole experience was you had people like him and other people like Scott Frank was one of our advisors who did a Queen's Gambit and just people who were taking your script so seriously. This thing that was just something that we would knock back and forth, you know, in our apartment and like over email and in coffee shops, like all of a sudden these people are like looking you in the eye and being like, no, I'm taking everything you're saying really, really seriously. I'm taking your work so seriously. And it makes you realize you need to, too, like you owe it to what you're you're putting together. Yeah, not to take yourself seriously, but to take the work seriously. Right. Yeah. I, I love that the working with a comedy writer helped unlock so many things. And I think one thing that resonates particularly with horror, and this is actually from a Sundance collab teacher named Owen Egerton, who is is a horror comedy guy, advised advised me is let your story have as much life as it has death, mm-hmm. uh, which is actually kind of, ironic with your yeah. <laughs> but I think it is something that is is important to to keep in mind and and I actually am very curious if, like one if there if you could throw a dialogue a line out there that was a uh, from the what was his name again oh, from Doug from, from Doug. Doug I don't think he's responsible for mad scientist princess bitch which no, is my was, favorite that was no, that was, that we, was we, you we came in with that <laughs> No, I think I don't have anything particularly, but there was so much of the of the odd couple back and forth. I mean, honestly, 
I know there's a lot of lines he did pitch that we did put in there and then helped us get like the tone right, but yeah. might not even be in the film. I mean, something also in editing, we did we did pull back on a lot of stuff or excise a lot of stuff to keep flow going, yeah. but was so important to, I think, getting the actors in the right headspace. I mean, Laura can speak a lot more with that, but like, I think we did have, almost every scene was longer as shot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we found yeah. ways to kind of pull it back. Well, and you never know exactly what you're going to use. I mean, maybe some people do. I, you know, I don't. I, I think uh, who was it? I, from another podcast, from the Script Notes podcast that I was listening to recently. John August and Craig Mason. Uh, yes, we love uh, them. And I think it was one of their guests, and it it wasn't one of them, but said, you know, I kick myself sometimes because the the script. You know, you think you become a seasoned writer, and why can't you predict what's not going to make it into the film? But very often the, the the actors are reading those extra scenes and it's really informing their character and their yeah. interpretation of the character. So even if it actually doesn't make it onto screen, it's like important to be in the script. Totally. And I think that was very true for us. There's a lot between Rose and Celie that ended up, you know, the actors are incredible. It, it didn't need to be spoken, yeah. but I'm glad they read it. And I'm glad it, it, it sparked our conversations when we were doing our table work. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of stuff that, you know, we shot, like it's something where you can't predict, oh, wait, Judy can do that with a look or, mm-hmm. or Marin just does that with like an eye roll. And like, you don't need those three lines mm-hmm. to get you there because they just did it. But, but you need them for safety. You yeah, yeah. You yeah. want them for safety you in case that it isn't as dazzling on the day you have that backup. Well, we had our line producer was out here at Sundance and Laura, after we did the the final cut, they went through the script and cut everything down to just what was in the final edit from the production draft. Oh, and I remember you telling him. That. Yeah, poor David Newhouse. He was a great. He's a great line producer. And I was like, David, so that our one hundred and hundred six page script, script that we went to production with was eighty seven pages, like in the edit. <laughs> but you can't know. Yeah, you can't know what's going to make it in or not. Absolutely. And 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 I think that there is value in. I mean, editing and cutting is a play is so important. And at that, I think when in doubt, cut it out mm-hmm. and you can always add it back in, but you know, it's so, you, you'd much rather have a lean story that's moving along than something that's bloated because you feel guilty. That, I mean, guilty is exactly the right word. Like I, you know, for me, I think I felt a pressure or a responsibility to represent many facets of, of, of birthing people and their yeah. experience. And we cut, there was a stillbirth scene. There were other scenes with parents and, and young mothers in the film that were beautifully acted and, you know, didn't need to be there. I think yeah. they just weren't propelling the story forward and they were more kind of expanding on our themes. Yeah. And just the way that this film is shaped and the way that it moves, it, it, they just, they needed to go. Right up front, and and I specifically asked Taylor if the opening scene was found in the edit because- mm-hmm. I don't want to spoil it, but but that scene and the question that is asked, what about me, mm. is immediately set the tone and was something that I've never seen on screen before mm. because so much of the like birthing experience is centered around the baby and not the person who is giving birth. And yeah. so it was a very like, a, again, you, you I feel like you both were able to set set the table in a way that was very satisfying to watch and explore and explore the horrors of being a parent and raising a child and being pregnant. And, and yeah, it was, it was so satisfying. 
I mean, as someone who hasn't had, we don't have children, you know, I think it was important to us to make sure that behind the camera and in front of the camera, that there, that there were people on set in creative positions who were mothers. Yeah. So Chananan Chotrungroj, our DP, who's incredible, is a mother. And, and she has spoken about her experience of having an emergency C-section, which is part of the film. Yeah. You know, her lens really informed that sequence completely. You know, Brita Will ha- is a mother who has, you know, had her own birthing stories. So uh, who was one of our actors. Brilliant. So, yeah, I mean, I think that that was important to us because— there is a lot of horror in my mind about what yeah. this is. I mean, you know, anticipatory fear or, you know, I think very often this fear of of having your identity subsumed, yeah. you know. But I did not want it to just be the sort of nightmare of someone who doesn't have a child about motherhood. You know, this right. this is, you know, a, a nuanced and complicated experience. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. Now, let's talk about getting the movie made. Take, walk me through, because it, 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 like I was mentioning before, when we were talking before we started recording, it feels impossible <laughs> for emerging filmmakers. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, but this is your first feature, yes. right? When, when did, it sounds like you started to, well, it was, it was good to see other people taking your project seriously in the labs. Mm. Take me through that point to the film is getting made. Sure. Yeah. So we we had worked on, well, I guess we'd made a short together called Friday that we co-wrote that I directed and Brendan produced. And so we had been building connections. We had we had representation, you know, we had a lot of support kind of going into the labs. Mm-hmm. We also had a longstanding relationship with Molly Elfman, who was a producer on the film. And and at that point, we considered her attached. We we went to the Sundance Film Festival after the labs. They were kind enough to give us a few tickets to nice. things and took a lot of meetings. And I think it was at that point that we met Emily Gatto, mm-hmm. who was who was an executive at Shutter, who really championed the film. Yeah, that the financing came together over the course of early 2020, and just as we thought, you know, yeah, this we is were, about to happen. Yeah, so I don't know if anyone's been watching the news, but March 2020 was a. <laughs> particularly fascinating period for trying to get a lot of people together in an enclosed space. So that fell off pretty quickly as did, mm-hmm. you know, transit yeah. <laughs> and everything else involved in the world. Logistics. Uh, yeah. You know, eating, bathing. No, but uh, washing off your groceries. Yeah. It was a super fun time if anybody wants to look back. But so, yeah, that, that paused everything. Did you have talent attached at that point? Uh, Not yet. It, it was... Marin became attached uh, in 2020, yeah. but a little bit later. You know, we knew that Rose probably needed to come first in terms of, you know, for Shudder's sake. Just, you know, it's a complicated character. And I yeah. think they wanted to know what she was going to literally look like. Yeah. And, you know, in prior experiences trying to put movies together, I have had often cases of friction where I'm really excited about an actor and the financiers are less so. What was so cool about Shudder and Marin was that she had done a horror film called The Dark and the Wicked, and they were in love with her. Yeah. So was, so she was my first choice, and I did not have to fight in any way. You know, they were like, oh my God, yes, let's get her on board. We love her. You yeah. love her. Yeah. So Marin came on in 2020 and was grac- graciously willing to sort of roll with it in terms of like, when are we going to film this thing? Yeah. <laughs> and I think for us, what it really came down to was people started filming. 
you know, things started happening, but COVID compliance and safety really eats up a tremendous portion of your budget. So I think between Brendan and Molly and myself, we were really looking at when is it viable? Like, when are we going to see enough of this money on screen to make it, to make the kind of movie that we want to make? Right. And that really didn't happen until, you know, this year. So we were, we were, we went into pre-production in, at the end of June. Yeah. And we shot in August and we wrapped this film September 28th. Production? Yeah. Yeah. We stopped shooting September 28th. It was our last day of photography. Of 2022. Whoa. Okay. So when did you, have you slept? No. No, not not even a little (laughs) bit. When, when did you, when did you hand over the DCP and were you working up till the last moment? January 13th. Last Friday. Yeah. Oh, wow. (laughs) Thanks. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. What was the biggest challenge with that? Crunch. Were and were you working with? I assume Shutter was part of the post production review process. They were supportive, but they they were pretty hands off. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we sent it to them. We did a test screening in New York and in LA with some sort of like friendlies. You know, we got limited notes from Shutter. They were they they felt that we had delivered the film that we had described, yeah. which was nice. Yeah, they were <laughs> they were incredibly supportive and like hands off in, in all the best ways. Yeah, our, I mean, it's funny because we've had our own. Horror seems too strong word. Bad experiences with with financiers, and so hasn't anybody else, especially at this level. And Emily Gatto and, and everybody at, at at Shutter were just pretty wildly support. Looking back on it, it's yeah. it's pretty insane the amount of autonomy they gave us and trust they showed us specifically. Trust to Laura and the whole crew. So yeah, we we had such a fantastic experience working with them. And yeah. the biggest challenge in post, I would say, was Rescue Birds. Oh my god. So so this is this is just like you know a funny thing where you're like oh the thing you think is going to be the easiest turns out to be the hardest thing in the movie. Uh-huh. We had there's a television show that keeps kind of oh, showing up, a children's I show. I know what re- I know from the <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. I was like are these helicopters in the film? Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> these are this is a children's show based on basically when we wrote the script we wrote it for The Wonder Pets, which is a real children's television show with a very cute duck and a turtle and a hamster. Guinea pig? Not I'm sure. not sure. Anyway, shockingly, the Wonder Pets people did not respond to our phone calls. <laughs> and so we 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 didn't have a show. And there's a sort of recurring gag that the that our girls watching the same thing, you know, over and over. So it needed to be like it needed to have an annoying theme song. Yeah. It needed to it needed to hit Why these are they marks. playing that song again? Yeah. They yeah. play it every episode. Right, exactly. So my brother Greg Moss wrote the Rescue Birds theme. Gordon wrote the script to this children's television show. Our our sound our, our sound mixer did all the animation. Joe Riglieri is an animator as well, and so he did the animation. Yeah. We cast it. You know, we I mean, it was a we orchestrated it. It was like so complicated and so much work. Our Brian Parker, our sound supervisor, was like, "You didn't tell me that I was also producing a children's television show." Yeah, <laughs> I I believed it was real. I thought it was a real show. And so, when are you pitching Rescue Birds? Well, funny story is, <laughs> you know, we we've negotiated away a lot of our of our perks yeah. on this film as our first yeah. feature. Uh, yeah, but we retain the merchandising rights to to anything involved. That was, with that was a particularly funny back and forth. Was like, you know, <laughs> of like, you know, they. You, you don't get to hold on to anything, understandably, if someone gives you enough money to make a feature. Right. But there was a big kind of, you know, when lawyers are talking to each other, a lawyer from the other side was like, well, we're letting you have all the merchandising rights. 
we were like, for this film, for huh? this film, great. That'll uh, but we think if there's any way we're going to make money off of this, it's going to be Rescue, Rescue Bird, Bird spinoff. Yeah. Uh, spin-off yeah. I think I think the the spinoff and I Rescue Bird merch, like, yeah, <laughs> it'll be some deep cuts. But honestly, like the cult following that, I I feel like this is something that people are going to be like geeking out over to the point that they'll want the inside baseball merch. Cool. So I love a t-shirt if it happens. We'll see what we get. When our, when Molly Elfman, our our producer was, you know, throwing stuff to me, like, it's like, okay, we need to do some casting notices for rescue birds. And like, what, what the hell does that even look like? I'm in like, you know, two hours of sleep. It's like, just, you know, what you think the characters need to be like. And for whatever reason, I like sat down and gave the most detailed breakdown (laughs) Of like, and totally seriously, each bird, their backstory. <laughs> it's like Ruffles, Red Bird. He's not as old as Bluesy, the natural leader, but he's trying to find his way in the world. Loves peanut butter, maybe a little too much. Jade is the smallest bird, always trying to prove themselves. I think that's that was the manifestation of our sleeplessness. Yeah. Was like <laughs> suddenly not? we've written a Tolkien novel about the rescue bird. But um, anyway, yeah, it was. I mean, Post was crazy, but it was really fun. And Taylor was a demon. I mean, she just cuts so intuitively so quickly. Yeah. It was actually, I can't wait for you all to listen to the post roundtable that we had because mm-hmm. we had we had Taylor, we had the editor Joe on Theater Camp, and then we also had the sound guys from Onyx and the I always oh, cool. the fortuitous mm-hmm. talisman. I'm butchering the name. No, but, but it, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Turns yeah. out that Taylor had worked with the sound guys and and then it was a a mutual love fest about creating sound and cut editors loving sound and vice versa and do you appreciate when we use good temp sound mm. and and one of the things that I we we touched upon was the score so I'd love to talk a little bit about that and and uh specifically I noticed that you were using the sound of an ultrasound at the score yeah. and and what else did you Use from the environment to inform the score, and what was the sort of horror is so driven by score as well. So, do you have a music background, or? Yeah, I do actually. I so I went to LaGuardia High School, which is like the New York City music and art high school, and was a percussionist. Oh. And yeah, thought I was going to be doing that until things took a left turn. I loved working with Ariel. We she she scored our first short film. And then Ariel Marks, yeah. Ariel Marks, sorry, our composer. She has since blown up. She she did Shiva Baby and so uh, many other great films. To Dust, very cool stuff. Because we're friends, we had the benefit of talking for years about this movie. You yeah. know, I've been talking to her about this since before we had a full script. So she was able to send me palette tests with different synth sounds. And we always talked about sort of, we want to marry this organic element and this machine element. And that's kind of, those are the two sides, mm. emotional sides of the story. Uh, we brought in ultrasound, fetal heartbeats, you know, all kinds of natural sounds. Ariel collaborated really closely with my brother, Doug Moss, was the sound designer. And you Brian mean Parker. the visual creator of The Rescue Birds? No, no. actually I have three brothers. So oh. my brother, Greg Moss, composed The Rescue Birds theme. My brother, Doug Moss, was a sound designer. Brian Parker was a sound supervisor. Brian has worked with Ariel before and they they adore each other. But, you know, it was such a cohesive team in terms of bringing the, the, the world sounds, the specific monitor and alarm sounds that recur in the film, mm-hmm. echoing them in the score and kind of weaving them back and forth and making room for the, you know, they would, they would definitely talk about, okay, now we need to really make room for the score 
now we really need to thin out the score and make room for our sound design. What was, was there any part where you assumed it would be a score moment and it ended up being a sound design moment? I'm, I tend to be really minimalist with score. Like, you know, I, I, I want it to sneak in and I don't want it to hammer you over the head. Yeah. There's actually the opposite where there's, there's a moment where Celie breaks in and discovers her daughter in, in bed alive. And there's, it's, it's a complicated sequence when it comes to kind of weaving in sound design and score because there's a, there's a huge alarm happening in the scene, which, which Brian really effectively faded into the background as we're close on Celie. So we're suddenly inside her emotional experience. We don't need to hear that alarm anymore. Mm-hmm. And this score comes in and just takes over. And then, and then ebbs and like, you know, leaves us room for the sound design again. But I think that, that was, the tr- to me, the trickiest moment in terms of like balancing everything. Yeah, there, there's a couple of other moments that would be pretty huge spoilers. But yeah, the way that they could kind of have a ballet between the two of them. I mean, having your, your sound supervisor and, and, and mixer being so in tune with the, uh, with the score and vice versa. It was, it's, it's pretty incredible the way they could work together. And it's a word I'll use for the two of them and for everyone else in our post process was the lack of ego was pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Like there's so many people we've never worked on something of this size before. You know, there's our previous stuff was like Laura and, and myself and maybe a, a couple of people coming in and out just hunched over a laptop until mm-hmm. the deadline comes. And it's like, you can't do that anymore. And you need all these people coming in who are so much better at you technically than so many things you could ever be. And the the lack of ego across the post-process and just the people who were working so hard to try and just make this good was incredibly cool. And the respect for cool. each other. The yeah. respect for each I mean, like Brian would just grin throughout the sound mix and go, Ariel's the best. <laughs> it was like, you know, they really did respect each other's work. And yeah. it's, it, was, it was beautiful to watch. Yeah. Now, what learnings from this first feature are you going to take into your next feature? For me, I like, it's weird. I got progressively chill. I don't know if Brendan's going to agree. Um, You'll finish the thought. For, from like, I feel like I have progressively chilled out over the course of making this movie. And, and I think it's, it's, I don't know if this is a lesson anyone else needs, but it it was a lesson I needed where Mm -hmm. I was really afraid in pre-production that I was going to miss something or fuck something up or like, you know, not be ready. Yeah. When an ask, actor had a question or I didn't know the answer. And I think, you know, this is much less like an athletic performance. You know, you, you, you just come every day and you will fuck up every day and you will do something right every day. Mm-hmm. And it's an accumulation of many, 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 many decisions. So I think the thing that I learned was, I mean, not only to cast and hire the best people and then just let them do their job. But also, like, you don't have to know everything. And you, if you just wake up every day saying, okay, I'm going to do my best today, and you really try to just retain, you know, a, a, like a, a wide perspective on the movie, it's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, you, other people will pick up that slack when you blank on something or you don't know something. Yeah. How about you, Brian? I would say be very hesitant about writing pigs into your script. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was going to ask about yeah. M- Muriel. Muriel the pig. Muriel's full name, the the pig actress, is Anjali Lakshmi Srinivasan. Mm-hmm. Anjali. Be- stunning Stunning. Really a beautiful name for a beautiful pig. No, the pig was great. The pig's handlers, mom, were great. We had a very good experience with everybody, but 
To be a stage, a pig stage mom is it's, yeah, that takes yeah, a lot. Takes a lot. But no, they were all they were all great. But like the complexities of trying to make a movie, and then after that, you're dealing with you know you don't have the budget to not shoot a night for day or day for night, and then you have to deal with child labor laws, and then you have to deal with like a lot of things that are just factual, and then you bring the six hours you can have a pig on set for how many days into yeah. that and what it has to do. Only six hours for we, the yeah, whole we had, No, no, no. Sorry, it was three days back to back to back. Of We had a six hour day, a six hour day, an eight hour day. Okay. And uh, we had to build the whole schedule around that because that was just an incredibly difficult, Actually, hard thing. To, yeah. Yeah. And she was worth it, but But it a is child plus a pig. A child and a pig. Yeah. A yeah, tough to do, but both the <laughs> child and the pig and the pig mom and the child mom were lovely. Well, I, I, we haven't touched at all upon the child's performance. What's, mm. what's that actress? actress Her name's name? AJ Lister, and AJ she's Lister. pretty phenomenal. Yeah, she has, she has it. Yeah, uh, and she also was not able to stay up for the whole screening because it's past her bedtime. Also not allowed to watch this movie. So that was my question. Did you show her her scenes or did she have much context for the film? She So her mom, Stephanie, is incredible, was on set for almost every day, every day. She was on set every day, um, every, every day. And she was a real partner in terms of making us, you know, making AJ comfortable, yeah. helping us work with AJ. AJ knew the very vaguest sort of definition of the plot. She she knew she died. She knew she came back to life. She knew she was a monster. She loves being a monster. She's a great monster. And, you know, I think, yeah, we 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 went to great lengths to protect the child. Like yeah. to me, the, the the mark of success of this movie is that AJ came out and had a really great experience. Yeah. She we storyboarded every sequence that was sort of questionable in terms of a child plus violence or a child near nudity or you know what's you know what's going to happen here. Right. And anytime we had a question, we storyboarded it out. We showed the storyboards to Stephanie. Mm-hmm. We talk about the difficulties and anything that might make them uncomfortable, and we figured out a way to to do it properly. Yeah. And then in pre-production, we did not have a lot of rehearsal time, but, and, and AJ and her family are based in South Carolina, North Carolina. North Carolina. So we would shoot videos back and forth. Mm-hmm. I would send references of certain walks, certain monster walks, or like a dementia patient. We would look at different kind of ways of moving. Yeah. And then Stephanie would film AJ. They would do exercises and send it back. And then we, we would talk about what, what was working and what we wanted to hone. So that was, that was really key. And on top of that, both Judy and Marin were so, so good with her and so good at being partners to just make sure that she was always comfortable, always in a, in a good space. And then if, you know, there's going to be a time that comes where, uh, uh, was she six? She was for, six years old. Yeah. A six year old is going to be like, not right now. Need a minute. And it's like, you can't, it doesn't matter what else is going on. You mm-hmm. need to be like, okay. Not right now. Yeah. We're going to get some really cool shots of a blood bag or a window (laughs) or detail work, whatever you want to call it. It's like, that's, you can't force that. Right. Like even if you, you know, didn't have a hard or a hole for that to affect you, you you practically can't force Mm -hmm. that. Um, So they were great. Judy also, you know, spent time with her beforehand so they could build up kind of a rapport. And I think that was invaluable. Now, a question that I had, but I should have asked earlier because we're nearing the end of the podcast and this is about the pre-production process, but I have to ask, Judy has played a nurse in the past. She has. Yeah. She has. <laughs> Famously. Oh yeah, she has. Yeah. Yes, yeah. she's. Yeah. <laughs> I, I forget the name of her character on Scrubs. Carla. Carla. Carla, Carla Espinosa. 
That was the show that I binged. It was the first binge show because I could find it legally on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And I binged it during my like high school breakup. Ugh. And so a lot of comfort from, from Judy's performances, not so much with this movie. Sure. Uh, and I thought she was fantastic. And I actually thought there was something really power, like an ease and a comfort in belief because I had that previous knowledge, but mm. so much time has passed. So was there ever any debate of like, well, should we cast Judy because she played Carla and we only see her in Scrubs? Like, I, I it crossed our minds, but you know, Judy was in a film called Gun Hill Road that was at Sundance many years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's this beautiful drama, Bronx set drama uh, about a family kind of coming to terms with a the father is coming home from prison and discovers that his child is trans and the mother's been you know dealing with that supporting the child up until this point yeah it's a beautiful movie and she's so good in it and so i had seen that in 2013 i think and it was before or right as we were gestating this movie so to speak and she just fused in my mind with with seely like Mm -hmm. it was like I, i could never picture anyone else yeah i was worried she'd say no because she played Carla. Yeah. And I think she's she's alluded to that fact too, that she was like another nurse. But, uh, you know, she responded to the material. We had a Zoom. It like immediately clicked. Yeah. And yeah, the rest is history. She She's so good um, yeah. and so fun to Truly. work with. I mean, yeah. it, it. I think there was like a moment of like easing into it, but it never bumped me in any way. Mm. Like she was so fantastic and 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 I love seeing imperfect humans on, or like a character who is an imperfect mom on screen. Mm. It's really refreshing. Well, as we wrap up now that I've got my Scrubs question out of the way, <laughs> uh, what advice do you have for emerging filmmakers? Maybe somebody who is has their eyes set on a feature, mm. but they're they're just you know they're on the earlier side of exploring it. It is incredibly I would just say to anybody like not I would say you need really really thick skin and I don't mean that as pull yourself up by your bootstraps or anything like that but like we're just talking about we had four rejections to the lab before we got into it I've seen so many people get discouraged by their first brush with uh, with rejection and then pivot into getting pretty angry and burning bridges yeah Mm. and I would just really caution against the very acting on the natural emotion of like if you get rejected that it's a rejection of you or a rejection of the stories you potentially have to tell or, or your voice, like, you know, it's, you're going to get a lot of rejection at literally every level of this. Mm-hmm. Right. Like we both have had so much rejection behind us and have so much rejection in front of us, <laughs> no matter how well anything goes. So yeah. if you're starting out, like just be aware you're going to get your hits and, and try and learn from them and yeah. don't, don't burn bridges. <laughs> Don't I mean, it, burn bridges unless you really feel like you have to. It does mean every rejection means you're putting yourself out there. Yeah. Which I think is, hmm. that's how I reframe it. I'm like, yeah, that, that's means I'm doing the right thing. Like, yeah. Celebrate it. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's yeah, a hundred percent. Like putting yourself out there is so hard and you should celebrate that even in a rejection. Yeah. And I, I mean, I would say, I would agree with that completely, but I would say that you know, just because a story is personal to you doesn't mean that it's going to connect with the audience. Like, and that's really painful because, you know, what part of what we're doing is telling stories that are really meaningful and deep for us. Mm-hmm. But it may be framed or created in a way that the audience feels like they've seen it before. I think my advice would be go watch shorts, like a million shorts. Mm-hmm. And and specifically, like, 
What's cool about shorts is that after a few years, they tend to be available online, even if they're not immediately. So you can say, okay, Sundance 2015, yeah. what, what were they programming? You tend to see trends. If you can be a screener for a festival or in any way, like I, I really encourage that. I was a reader for Tribeca All Access, mm-hmm. their granting program. And then I was a screener for South by for their music videos. And you just, you just see everything. Yeah. And you see what you've seen before. And, yeah. you, and you kind of learn, I think, that way to tell stories in new ways. So I, that, that was really helpful to me. That's great advice. Both two pieces of tactical advice. So actionable advice. Well, thank you both so much for joining. Where can people follow your work? On Instagram at Retrospector Films. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Laura and Brandon, for joining us during your premiere week at Sundance to geek out about this story. I really appreciated how transparent they were about the writing, rewriting, and discovery process and how many attempts it took to even be accepted into the Sundance labs. I think it's very easy to assume that it's sort of like a one and done thing, but really this is a long game that we're playing for when it comes to these labs and this career. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in. You can like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast across all podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at No Film School. And you can get more No Film School on our website, nofilmschool.com. Let us know what you thought of this episode. And thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.